Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their position of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed by Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, <clears throat> eating with you without the slightest qualm shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves on the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest night has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his Holy One to judge everyone and to convict them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others to their own advantage. But you, dear friends, remember what the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Holy Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, in praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ 
to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Please take your Bible and turn to Jude. You'll find uh, Jude on, if you're using one of our Bibles, on page 1026. 1026. We continue in our study of this book. And we continue looking at the five commands that he gives at the end of the book and using them as um, the, the, the bones of how we're, how we're looking at the book. And our banner over here on my left, your right, we've looked at remember and keep. And now at help. And we take that word help, it's, we've reworded it a little bit. It's at verse 22. Look at verse 22. It says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. That's the third command, and I've rephrased it to say, help, help those who doubt. I asked myself the question, so how does doubting, how does doubting fit into this letter and the situation in which it was written? Some people um, are in the faith. They've already identified themselves in one way or another with the other believers and with our faith in Jesus Christ. And yet the false teaching that, that Jude is warning about, that then the false teachers have created doubts. So there's questions going on in, in, in some people's minds. Not in everyone, but in some people's minds. And they're caught between the apostles' teaching on the one hand and the false teachers' teaching on the other. I got to thinking about this. Look at verse 4 again. Verse 4 gives us the core issue. If you had to boil it down to what's the, the core problem of the false teachers in Jude's day. It was, a, it was a distortion of the meaning of what grace is. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, they're perverting the grace of God. And that's, that's what Jude's main concern is here. And that's why we've, we've named this whole series Grace Rediscovered. He's trying to help his readers rediscover what real grace is. So maybe there's some doubts about grace that, that have uh, been put into people's heads because of listening to these false teachers. Are we really able to be completely forgiven? Maybe that's someone's question. Am I, can I, I'm doubting God's grace. Am I, can I really be forgiven? Or maybe bouncing off of the book of Job, we're asking or someone's asking themselves, do we really have to be strict with ourselves in how we live since we are forgiven? <clears throat> But 
any of the fundamental teachings of the apostles can be doubted. And even we, we know that we're surrounded by those who, like in Jude's day, those people who tell us that what we believe is actually wrong. <laughs> we're, we, we have voices like that all around us. The incarnation, the fact that Jesus Christ is actually God having become a human being. Is that really true? Or his death on the cross, was he really purchasing our forgiveness by dying in our place on the cross? Or, or was that just some guy getting, one more guy being crucified by the Roman soldiers? And then the resurrection. Did he really rise from the dead? And then questions can come into our minds that go even deeper, all the way down to, is there really a God? Does God really exist? And if God exists, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Maybe all of this is just a mirage. It's not really real. Or... Is it real? Is it true? There are all sorts of voices in our world which scoff and mock and create doubt and try to get you and me to doubt too. And added to the human voices is the evil one himself who the scripture calls the deceiver of the whole world. He's behind the scenes trying to cause doubt. And into this mix, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. And I'm saying it this way, help those who doubt. Now, as I was thinking about this, um, a person came to mind in the New Testament. Um, who do we think of when we think of doubting? Thomas, look at that. Doubting Thomas. He's, he, earned, he earned that. How'd you like to have that for your nickname? You know, down through the ages. Doubting Thomas. And I went to him in the, in the New Testament, and I was, I was thrilled, actually, to see the lessons from his life that can apply to ours. So I want you to go with me to chapter 20 of John. It's on page 907. What can we learn about doubt and our response to it and God's response to our doubt from looking at the life of Thomas? Look at John 20, beginning at verse 24. Now, what's happened already is that Jesus one week earlier had risen from the grave and he had appeared to the disciples for one reason or another we don't know the reason uh, uh, Thomas happened to not be there at the moment so Jesus appears and all the disciples are excited about this um, uh, but Thomas wasn't there so uh, a week uh, so so this is what his response to them was look at verse 24 it says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, 
Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never, I will never believe. So Thomas is saying, I need, I need more proof than your word. I need more than just you telling me. I, I, I need something more. I need more proof. James Boyce uh, said, Thomas indeed was a doubter. He was not lacking in courage, loyalty, or devotion to Jesus, but he did have a gloomy disposition. That's kind of interesting. Well, I went and looked at the other places where we see Thomas. Now, other than the places where Thomas is mentioned along with all the other disciples, other than that, there are two other places in the book of John that we get a little insight into Thomas's life. So, so turn to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 14. Now, at this point, Jesus had moved off into a remote, remote area away from Jerusalem because the last time he was in Jerusalem, the authorities had tried, tried to seize him and they obviously had no, no good intention in doing so. And this is the story about Lazarus, that he had, Jesus had received news that Lazarus was dying and Jesus intentionally waited and then uh, got the news that, that Lazarus had died. And so, in, we pick up the story there in 14. It says, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now, where Lazarus was, was in Bethany. It was just right, at, so you could almost call it a suburb of Jerusalem. It's right there. And so, uh, they had moved out of Jerusalem because he was being pursued. Now he's going to go back. You can almost picture this dead silence among the disciples like, he's going to go back there? And then good old Thomas speaks up in verse 16. He says, it says, so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. <laughs> cheerful, cheerful kind of guy. But, he's, but we, we remember, as we're looking at Thomas and trying to get to know him, he kind of looks, he's kind of a half, the glass is half empty kind of a guy. But he's there, and he's saying, he's the one who spoke up. He said, well, let's go. Let's go with him. We're going to all die, but let's all die with him. It's kind of his disposition. Then look at chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 5. This, is, this follows the beautiful, beautiful uh, teaching of Jesus. Well, just back up in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Picture yourself there. You are standing in front of the Son of God. And he's saying, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, not, would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And in the face of this wondrous comforting teaching Thomas said to him verse 5 Lord we don't know where you're going how can we know the way and I, I, I can even see myself in some of, some of Thomas got to analyze it 
Got to engineer it as best I can. Got to figure it out. So his questions aren't answered. This is Thomas. His, his questions aren't answered. So then you get, that's, that's him. And then you get a little bit of a feel for who he was. Then you get to chapter 20 again where we left off. So go to chapter 20. And verse 25, he's saying, I won't believe until I touch him. I want proof. And then we pick up the story in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those, happy are those, who have not seen and yet have believed. This time Thomas was with the other disciples. And Jesus sought him out. And once seeing Jesus, Thomas didn't need all the proof that he thought he needed. Did you notice he didn't touch him? He said, unless I touch it, and Jesus said, here, you go touch. And Thomas didn't need that. He just fell to his knees. He didn't need all the proof that he thought he did. And it's been pointed out that verse 28, look at verse 28, is the strongest, clearest profession of faith in the book of John. My Lord and my God. There is no other profession of faith in John that looks like that. And look at, look at, you remember how the whole book started? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John starts off by saying, this is, I'm talking about the eternal Son of God, so this is God who has become flesh. And some commentators believe that John, as he's crafting his gospel, the writing of his record here, John is, is leading right up to this. This is the peak of the climb that he's been taking since verse 1. He starts with 1 and, he, and he re- this is where he is going. The doubter says, my Lord and my God, you, the wounded Jesus who rose from the dead, you are God. What happened to Thomas? It's a wondrous story. We only have it from tradition, from other historical writings, and none of those writings are actually right at the time. It's, it's so, so there was some stories handed down and they were written later. So we, we can't verify the details of all the stories about the Apostle Thomas, but in general we know this, that God led him to Asia 
So Thomas left, eventually left Jerusalem and Israel and went apparently by boat for most of the trip to Asia and he introduced the gospel to the subcontinent of India. He preached the gospel in India. People were saved. He planted churches there, but eventually, of course, ran into opposition and he was lanced with a spear and killed because of his faith. But the church took hold in southern, in southern India. India is massive subcontinent and it has thousands of people groups actually and languages. So he, he made it into some of them down in the south and to this day the churches in those people groups they'll tell you the gospel got to us because of Thomas. Is that cool? How does all of this apply to us? Where, where Jude is saying, he's saying, help those who are doubting. Help those who are doubting. Well, I want to address a few thoughts to two sets of people. First of all, to those who know someone who is doubting. You have a friend who's doubting. And then secondly, to you if you are doubting. So, to those who know someone who is doubting, first of all, show mercy. In Jude, that's what's being said. He says in Jude, verse 22, and have, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy. It's very interesting to me that in the book of Jude, which is so, we're, we're having it read to us every Sunday in different versions, but every Sunday. And in the book of Jude, it's so full of judgment. And yet Jude emphasizes mercy. In his, in his um, greeting, in verse 2, it says, may mercy, it's the first word. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. If you compare that greeting to other greetings in the, in the epistles, you realize that Jude is pretty, he's unique in emphasizing mercy. The others talk about grace and, and, and peace and love, but Jude puts in there mercy. And then he mentions mercy twice in his commands. Mercy. Very descriptive of judgment, Jude is, and yet he reminds us of God's mercy. We needed mercy. Amen? Did you need mercy? Absolutely. And do we need mercy today? Absolutely. So we must show mercy to others. The one who is doubting needs to be able to talk about his or her doubts. We can't, we, we, we can't be judgmental. We can't be a lofty, you know, like, you're doubting? What's wrong with you? No, you, you can't do that. Chances are you've had some doubts in your life yourself. Amen? So we need to be merciful to those who doubt so that they can talk about their doubts and, and we can be maybe used to the Lord to help them think it through. So number one, show mercy to them. Number two, keep your friend who is doubting. Keep your friend among God's people. I think it's very interesting that, that Thomas was gone. He wasn't in the group when Jesus first revealed himself. And then, but he was there again. I, I, they, and it, we know that they went and they told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. So they went and talked to him. I can't help but believe, and they made sure that Thomas didn't drift away, and they kept Thomas in the group. 
So keep your friend among God's people. It's going to be among God's people where Jesus reveals himself to your friend. And number three, answer your friend's questions as best as you can. The other disciples, like I said, they did tell Thomas about the risen Christ. They didn't do nothing. They didn't just say, well, Thomas should have been here. You know, he wasn't here. He should have been here. It's his fault. They didn't say that. They went and told them. So talk with your friend. If you're being merciful to your friend, they're going to be open with you about their questions and, and you can talk about them. And then, and it might be that you don't know the answer to some of their questions. Well, guess what? Don't worry about it. God's not worried about it. Your doubts are not shaking God. So just do your best. And when Jesus reveals himself to your friend, your friend will realize that he or she didn't need all those answers anyway. So answer your friend's questions as best you can. And then lastly, pray for your friend. Pray. Only God can open eyes. I think about the Apostle Paul's example of this. And he's praying in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. Uh, so, and I'll just mention the reference here. If for those of you, you might want to write it down. If there's someone, a friend of yours, that's doubting, write down Ephesians 1, 16 to 18. And then take that and pray for them. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Actually, it, the sentence goes on longer. But you see here, he's praying that God would give them a spirit of revelation, meaning that God would reveal to them himself and, it, and the Lord, and that he would open the eyes of their hearts. Only the Lord can do that. So you pray and ask the Lord to do that. Thomas's friends did not open Thomas's eyes. Jesus did that. And guess what? Jesus is still opening people's eyes. He's still doing this. Amen? So you pray. And don't give up praying. In this example, it took a week. But sometimes it takes a year. And sometimes it takes a decade. George Mueller, the famous uh, pastor and then... Um, he, he ran the orphanage, this giant orphan, what well, it became giant in, in England. It was in the 1800s. Uh, and there's all kinds of stories about that. But <clears throat> he had a prayer list and he had some people he was praying for that they would become Christians and that their eyes would be opened. And um, they went back and they looked and at his funeral... A friend of his became a Christian. And when they looked into his books, his journals, he had prayed for that man for 40 years. <clears throat> he prayed for him for 40 years. And at his funeral, that man came to Christ. Pray. Amen? Just pray. Keep praying.
Now, to those of you here who are doubting, so now I'm not talking about you have a friend who's doubting. I'm talking about you. you you're doubting. I have a couple things to say to you. Number one, you're in good company. Your questions do not mean that you're outside of the love of God. There's an amazing verse. It's in Matthew 28, 7, 16 and 17. We've already referenced verse 18 and following. That's the Great Commission and, and where Jesus said, go and make disciples and baptize them. We already talked about that for the baptism. The verse right before it, <laughs> two verses before it says this. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Are you kidding me? <laughs> These guys and all they've gone through, and they're here, and, he, they're, and they're still, there's a little bit of doubt here and there. So if you are doubting, you're in good company. Doubt is real, and we can all have it. In James chapter 1, it says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. Now, I believe that doubting can be one of those kinds of, there's all sorts of trials. One can be that you're doubting some of the, the apostles' teaching. You're caught between this other stuff you've heard and the, what the apostles have given us. That can be a trial. Listen to what it goes on. It says, count it joy when you meet various tri trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our faith is strengthened by trials. And one of those trials can be doubt. And, and, and Thomas, who is wobbly all there... Imagine, I love this verse, it says, it, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What kind of steadfastness did it take to travel from Israel to India in those days to, to be the first one walking into a whole continent of people that knew nothing of Christ, to preach the gospel, to see the church started, and then to stand up for the faith in the face of those who are going to kill you. The doubts of Thomas, once answered by Jesus, made him stronger. And your doubts are going to do the same thing. Jesus is going to take your doubts and make you stronger by them. So you're in good company, number one. Number two, stay with God's people. As we already saw, Thomas was still with the other disciples. And that's where Jesus came to see him. So you stay with us. <laughs> stay among God's people. Let's seek Jesus together. Seek his face together. He'll, he will meet you. And then thirdly, lastly, at some point, you must leave your, your doubt behind. Jesus is going to, to put you at the place where you have to leave your disbelief behind. Thomas believed, and he went on to serve his Lord. So for you, Jesus says this, have you believed because you've seen me? Well, he said that to Thomas, but let's take it to ourselves. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's going to come a point. Jesus is not going to let you wobble forever. 
And there's going to come a point where it's going to be a choice between disbelief and belief. And you'll be ready and you'll, cho- you'll choose and you will cross and you'll believe and leave the disbelief behind you. And then you'll be blessed. Even more blessed than Thomas. Because you didn't have to see Jesus. You could just see him with eyes of faith. So keep asking your questions. Keep an open heart towards God. And he'll show you just enough for you to fall on your knees before the wounded Christ and say, My Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father, we love and praise you for you have opened our eyes. It wasn't our education. It wasn't our smarts. It wasn't our anything. It was you by your Holy Spirit opening our eyes to see Jesus who died and rose again for us. Lord, I pray that for those here who are doubting that you would come to them as you did to Thomas. Reveal yourself to them that they might turn aside from their disbelief and disbelieve. And Lord, I pray for all of us who have friends who are doubting that you would, you would give us the grace to show mercy, to not be afraid, to entertain their questions and to pray. Lord, work in our midst, we pray. And open eyes, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.